again, back to kind of our collective humanity, this has to be a time that we focus on mission and, and let go of some of those institutional barriers, let go of some of those silos and just get whatever resources we collectively can. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them. This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show. Of course, coming to you live from my flat during the COVID-19 pandemic. First and foremost, of course, we hope you're all well and safe and healthy as you listen to this and really pleased to be joining you in your headphones today. Before we dive into the episode, another huge shout out and thank you to our official season three sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation. Okay, now on to today's conversation. I'm joined here now, virtually of course, by IG's Chief Executive, Alicia Miranda, who's going to co-host today's episode with me. So over to Alicia to tell you more about it. Thanks, Rachel. And hello, listeners from Social Isolation up here in Scotland. So, of course, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation needs no introduction. With $46 billion of resources in the trust and an annual grant-making budget of approximately $6 billion, it's the largest foundation in the world, funded primarily by the Gates family and Warren Buffett. They fund globally in over 100 countries and focus on five strategic areas to reduce inequality. Today, we're thrilled to be speaking with Victoria Vrana, Deputy Director of Philanthropic Partnerships at the Foundation. In this role, Victoria leads the foundation's Giving by All initiative, which aims to inspire and enable more informed and intentional generosity by everyday givers. Giving by All supports programs in the US and abroad that give donors resources to make informed decisions about their philanthropy. They invest in innovation and research to determine how and why individuals give and to identify new opportunities to unlock more philanthropic resources to tackle complex problems and improve lives. Giving by All has also been very involved in the philanthropic response to COVID-19, and they have a terrific newsletter of COVID resources you should absolutely subscribe to. Today's episode is going to be all about this, exploring the current landscape of philanthropy in the time of COVID and understanding what that means for the present and future of fundraising. All right. Thanks, Alicia. So now we are going to give Victoria a call, and we hope you enjoy listening. Welcome, Victoria, to What Donors Want. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today and really appreciate you taking the time, especially during such a busy and and hectic time for you. Thanks, Rachel. I'm excited to be here. So as you know, we are starting off the episode with our usual speed round of get to know you questions, and then we'll dive into the philanthropy bit. So Alicia and I are going to kind of speed fire some questions at you, just say the first thing that comes to your mind, and then we'll go from there. Great. Awesome. Question number one. What is your favorite day of the week? Sunday. Question two. What was your favorite decade for pop culture and why? 
Oh, the 80s. Come on. Nothing is better than the 80s. I know. Although the 70s, sometimes the 70s. Yeah, 70s or 80s. So good. If you could host an episode of What Donors Want and sit down and interview any donor of your choosing about their experience, who would it be? That's a great question. Sorry, I can't be more rapid fire with this. I think of all kinds of different responses. Melinda Gates was one of the first that came to mind. Maybe I'll have a chance at some point to sit down <laughs> and talk to her more about it. Maybe she'll listen to this and then give it to you. That would be amazing. Exactly. That would be, he would be okay. Cool. Okay, number four. What Friends character would you be? Friends is in the TV show? As in the TV show. Oh, good Lord. I can't remember them all well enough. To be, it's been a long time. I didn't get back into the Friends revival, right? I was Friends original, which was many, many years ago. For some reason, Ross comes to mind, but I don't know why. So don't, <laughs> don't go too deep into that. She's a Ross. Fair. <laughs> okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. All day long. Lots of it. It's like not even a pause for that one. It's just true. And finally, a picture or a thousand words? Thousand words. Words, words, words. I'm not visual. I love words. There we go. Okay, that is it. You have officially survived the speed round. Thank you. Now on to the more run-of-the-mill questions. So, of course, Victoria, as listeners know, you are the Deputy Director of Philanthropic Partnerships at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And specifically, you lead the Foundation's Giving by All initiative. So, of course, today's episode is definitely focused on COVID to an extent. But before we dive into the specificities of your work in relation to that, could you zoom out for a second and tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get into the world of philanthropy and what are your primary responsibilities at the Foundation? Yeah, it's a great question. So I never meant to be in philanthropy. It was not my intent. Like, I'm going to go be in philanthropy. For some people, that is like a, a path. And now there's a PhD you can get and everything else. I was a social change person. And my mom tells a story about how when I was like 12, apparently I was a member of Amnesty International. My sister told me about Amnesty. I was a member. I got the little thing in the mail every month. And there was a thing about starting an amnesty group in your town. And there was a flyer you could photocopy. So I photocopied the flyer and I put it up at the library and I put it around the town. I said, you know, come to my house at 7 p.m. on a Wednesday. And so the, the door, people start knocking at the door on a Wednesday night. And my mom opens the door and there's like these grownups there, right? I'm here for the Amnesty International meeting. She was like, my daughter's 12 and you need to go home. And so then in high school, I started a high school group. So I was always kind of, you know, wanted to change the world. And my first job was at an international women's NGO. And I was employee number one. It was very, very small. But we had a Ford Foundation grant and a USAID grant to help women around the world get online. This was the early 90s. There was no web. We were talking about email and dial-up modem. So I kind of went deep into this international social change, um, internet technology world. And from there, I went to a consulting firm for a couple of years where I worked for foundations and large nonprofits and kind of got the bigger, more organized side of that picture. And I learned a ton when I was there. And then I went and worked for a guy named Mario Marino. And Mario Marino was an entrepreneur who had done extremely well with his company early 90s, early acquisition, before any of the internet bubbles. And he really wanted to give back, but he wanted to do it differently. 
when he got into organized philanthropy, he was like, what is this? Like, it didn't make any sense to him from being an entrepreneur and an investor. And so he really was one of those pioneers in kind of turning philanthropy on its head. This was in the late 90s. It was when he really started his work. And he created something called Venture Philanthropy Partners and really helped kind of build the field of venture philanthropy. So my entry into philanthropy was all about shaking philanthropy up and disrupting philanthropy and changing philanthropy. We didn't even call it philanthropy and grant making. And so I was there for 12 years and really kind of from the ground floor helped um, build that organization and learned so much and really learned a lot from a, I'm a systems person. And so the whole getting capital to those on the front lines, like I used to be as like employee number one at this tiny organization that system doesn't work as well as it should. And so I got really kind of obsessed with like, how do you make that system better? How do you change philanthropy? How do you get the money to all the, I want to I love all the causes, right? Human rights are close to my heart, but there's like 500 other causes I care about. So I want to help them all. And so then when the opportunity came up to go to the Gates Foundation and work on philanthropy and I'm still kind of trying to shake it up and disrupt it a little bit and help donors give more and give better. That was really irresistible. So that's how I ended up at Gates and I've been there for eight years now. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing. And of course, your team gets to fund some super interesting work through Giving By All. Could you share some specifics with us? And you know, what's the most exciting thing you're working on right now? Absolutely. So for the last five years, we've been funding a lot of research into how donors behave and how to change that behavior. We've also been trying to illuminate parts of the giving market. It doesn't necessarily think of itself as a market. It's really fragmented. So we've been trying to fill in gaps and really understand all the ways donors give and where there's growth opportunities and how we connect up those gaps. And then we've been funding a bunch of innovation. How do you take that research and create products and tools that will really change donor behavior across the whole market, across the whole system? And we work with a bunch of amazing partners like Donors Choose and Global Giving. We have all kinds of different grantees and partners. Um, we're partnering with Lightful to really test out how to help small NGOs use social media to fundraise better and more effectively. That's been a tremendous partnership. One of the things I'm most excited about is something called Better Giving Studio. And Better Giving Studio is a site we made to really help get ideas about new concepts for giving just out under Creative Commons license so anyone can steal them. And we're about to partner with OpenIDEO to kind of take that site to its next level and run some open challenges through the site. So we can really try to amplify the, the creative energy around new ways that people can give and new tools. And so more to come on that in the summer. Check out bettergivingstudio.org and you'll see a lot more about how to participate in that challenge because we'll need people from all over the world, really. I will just second that endorsement. We have used a ton of the resources that are on there in particular. A lot of the research you did with Ideas42 and some of those partners around nudging and producing randomized control trials around people's giving, I think has really, it's extremely thought provoking, but it's really helped us do our job better. And we've shared that with clients in turn. So definitely a plug to go to Better Giving Studio and check out the resources that are there. So I'm going to turn to the topic on everybody's mind at the moment. We are, of course, recording today's episode 
all in our respective homes during the coronavirus pandemic, COVID-19. The Gates Foundation is doing some really incredible work to address this crisis. You guys have come out early, you came out loudly, and really have been recognized as a leader in the philanthropy sector. So we'd love you to tell us a little bit more about this. How is the Gates Foundation, and also specifically your team, Giving by All, responding to COVID-19? I'm happy to share that. And there's a lot, so bear with me. I'll try and, and share it as concisely as I can. You know, so the Gates Foundation as a whole has been working on the pandemic since January when we saw what was coming. And we remain committed to our core areas of funding. We have too much work across too many program areas. They're all being affected. And we have to check in with all of our grantees to see how they're doing and how their work is changing but it's primarily new dollars and the expertise of our staff that we're turning towards COVID. And, you know, Bill and Melinda have been worried about a pandemic for a long time. I think that people have seen some evidence of that lately. And, you know, they've been funding pandemic and epidemic preparedness for years. So we were in a good place to immediately tap into relationships and expertise. Our funding for COVID-19 falls into four areas, vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, and efforts on the ground to protect the most vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. And since we're a global foundation, the first thing that means for us is Asia and Africa and the needs there and the incredible gaps in the ability to respond to the crisis. We're moving really quickly to identify therapeutics and get them through clinical trials, manufacturing into market. And in February, we launched something called the Therapeutics Accelerator with Welcome Trust and others. We've had a ton of amazing investors join in with us on the Therapeutics Accelerator. Our team was particularly excited when Madonna made a contribution to the Therapeutics Accelerator. And, you know, I know we'll talk more about how philanthropy is changing in this time, but it is kind of amazing that you can get people to contribute to something called the therapeutics accelerator right now. I mean, that's just mind blowing in normal times that wouldn't happen, but folks really get the importance of science right now and this kind of research. So the accelerator is rapidly assessing all the libraries at pharmaceutical companies to see whether there are existing therapies that can be repurposed. And the goal is to have something to market as early as the end of this year. Delivering and developing um, diagnostics that can be used in low resource settings is a top priority. So there are a lot of great solutions right now, but, but many of them can't work in places where there are low resources. So we're always looking at things with a lens of what can reach the most vulnerable populations. I don't think it'll surprise you to hear that we're hyper-focused on the development of low-cost vaccines. Right? This is the thing on everyone's mind. And I think a lot about how when we have the vaccine, how all of our efforts right now will pivot. Everything everyone is doing around the world will become laser focused on getting that vaccine to 7 billion people. And I've been thinking a lot about the March of Dimes, you know, the history of the March of Dimes, actually the dimes were raised to help get the polio vaccine to people. And I think about how we're gonna need this March of dollars, this March of euros, this March of pounds, this absolute like, you know, all in effort on the vaccine. But anyway, we got to get to the vaccine first. So we've been working with the Center for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, which is CEPI. And that's an organization we co-founded after the West Africa Ebola outbreak. So again, building on the, the shoulders of the things that have gone before. We're doing upstream discovery on vaccines. And there are a handful of promising candidates. You know, we've all read about this. I read the same things everyone else does. The race is on trying to get something at the lowest price quickly out within the next 12 months. 
And then as we look at the most vulnerable populations, we're funding organizations on the ground in Africa, India, and other parts of South Asia, funding centers for disease control, funding organizations that are working with governments and ministries of health, and really trying to support health systems. The things we've been doing in the U.S. include a lot of work in our backyard in the Seattle, Washington area. So we funded multiple community foundations, homeless shelters, food banks. The foundation's providing a lot of technical and financial support to the county, so the health department and others, and you know, doing lots of stuff in our, our home base. With the Giving By All team, our team has really just been, it's been this amazing, inspirational place to be. We're at the epicenter of all the incoming offers of generosity. So when a donor like, wants to give 50,000 laptops or someone wants to let other funders know about a big gift they're making or find other funders to to co-fund with, we've been getting lots of income. And so we have launched something called the Power Of program. And Power Of has a couple different components. We're launching two websites and one of them was created yesterday. So it was kind of fresh off off the front lines. And really, we're trying to aggregate all the great resources that are out there. And so Power Of brings together resources from Donors Choose, Volunteer Match, Candid, and Giving Tuesday, so people can easily find trusted opportunities to give time and money. We'll be adding partners and content and features and all kinds of things onto that. The other platform we're working on is something more behind the scenes for foundations and funders to better coordinate and find out where the needs are and identify opportunities for co-funding. Underneath that, we announced yesterday, so May 5th, I know your listeners will listen to this all other times. So on Giving Tuesday, which was a remarkable day yesterday, we announced over $10 million in new funding to really power what we're thinking of as this generosity infrastructure right now, because across the country, you know, in the U.S., there are over 700 funds. I don't know. Do you have a number in the U.K. or Europe? Do you know how many emergency funds have sprung up? I haven't seen like a comprehensive total. I think there have been a few really strong coordinated national efforts, including like the National Emergencies Trust Fund, which has quite a few of the big players across regions in the U.K. And then there are other smaller ones, whether it's people like the Rosa Fund who are raising specifically for women and girls and gender justice across the country, and even down to small organizations who are working on the front lines who have launched their own emergency funds. But it would probably be a good exercise to pull a comprehensive number together. Maybe we should do that. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out for it if there's one country by country. We have this kind of total number, but I think it does include some international ones. So it's not it's not exact either. But I think we all know there's a lot of collective efforts right now, and there's more coming every day. And what we're hearing from folks managing the funds is that they need help running these funds, and they need help with extra staff support. They need help marketing them. They need help with technology. They're trying to figure out payment stuff. Some some folks have done this before. Others haven't at all. And, you know, again, they're the recipients of such amazing generosity. We're trying to shore those up. And so the uh, the bulk of the grants we made yesterday, a lot of them will go out via open RFP. There will be a large request for proposals in the U.S. from fund managers to give out small grants to really help support those. So we're excited to see what we learn through that and what goes out. We're also making a couple grants to support virtual volunteering and creating more virtual volunteer opportunities and also to support advocates for the sector in the U.S. I'm sure 
it's been similar in other places, but here it was really important to make sure nonprofits weren't forgotten in the government response because sometimes that happens. And so our advocates have been working just night and day and trying to make sure that the nonprofit sector is included in all of these kind of discussions and deliberations. It's amazing. I think we've really seen quite a few different types of donors and their reactions to the crisis, different paths being taken. You guys, as part of the Philanthropic Partnerships team, have really incredibly unique access to donors from all around the world who are trying to make a difference. And and as you said, the generosity has been extraordinary. So from your experience over the past six weeks plus, how do you think philanthropists have been responding to COVID-19 and what are the challenges you see them navigating with those responses? So overall, donors have been responding, right? I mean, it is just overwhelming. For every kind of donor intermediary I know, it's like the end of the year. You know, the activity is analogous to what's been, what usually happens at the very end of the year. And so it is amazing how much people have stepped up and how quickly and with such flexible funding. So one of the big changes we've seen is a lot of flexibility. And, you know, again, and I think there's an analogous pledge in Europe and and I think the UK pledge was first, like getting organized philanthropy to loosen restrictions, give more general operating support, really kind of make rapid fire grants. And in the US, the Council on Foundations pledge now, it's over 700 foundations. And now there's a lot of effort I've been hearing from organizations to put teeth behind that. What does that mean? How do you do that? Here are some tools. Because it's one thing to take a pledge. I'm going to like exercise every single day. <laughs> and then you kind of need help making that happen. And so it's exciting to see what will come out of that and what might make some of those commitments actually stick and change behavior. So I think there's a lot happening now that has the potential to change philanthropy later. And that flexibility, that, that institutions changing the way they fund is one thing that might happen. One of the other things we're happening is totally unusual bedsellers. You know, we're seeing all kinds of folks come together in these collaborations. You've got government, you've got old school foundations, you have Rihanna, maybe a Jack Dorsey. Like you're you're just having really kind of unusual people come together to make things happen, which again, is I hope a trend that'll continue. That in this time, relationships will be forged and partnerships will be made that can break down some of the super unnecessary silos in the sector. If it's about getting capital, social change people, why do we have so many things in the way and so many silos, right? So if we can break some of that down, that would be exciting. We're also seeing people fund things, again, that they would never normally fund. Therapeutics accelerators, right? Another big trend I'm seeing, which you may be seeing, is this incredible interest in funding direct cash transfer. So direct crash transfers for a long time have been there like they're amazing and there's like RCT proof that they work really well, but they're kind of a side thing and and hadn't really, I felt like had their moment in the sun yet. Now they're like right in the spotlight. And whether it's everyday donors, you know, Venmoing strangers with cash, or whether again it's people supporting these more organized efforts from Give Directly and the Family Independence Initiative. There's some beautiful kind of structures and assurances that are coming up to make that feel like a safer philanthropic gift. And it's really exciting to see that. I think we're all going to learn a ton from that. Challenges. So that's some of the cool stuff we're seeing. Big challenges are people 
needing and wanting really curated and trusted embedded information. So if you're a funder who hasn't funded vaccines and you want to put a million dollars into vaccines, you do not want to do that haphazardly. And we're seeing funders who have, you know, proposals from researchers from 20 different illustrious institutions. It's very difficult for them to assess this one versus that one. And so we're seeing a a willingness and a hunger for information and guidance in places people want to fund in areas that they don't normally fund in. And so they want that information. At the same time, donors have organizations that they know well and they care about and they support and they want to get others to be. So they have information to share and they need information. So there's just an incredible hunger for coordination and information that's huge. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things we're seeing. It's part of what has made Gates Philanthropy Partners a choice for some people right now, and that's the public charity that sits alongside the Gates Foundation. So anyone who wants to give to like anything we're doing can give to Gates Philanthropy Partners, and, and they've also seen a big, huge surge in contributions. That is really interesting, and, and thank you so much for sharing all of those insights. It's, it is wonderful, as you say, to see the flexibility or the kind of loosening of restrictions on on a lot of previously restricted support. And and I, I also love when you mentioned that one of the challenges is needing this high quality curated information. And from the nonprofit side, we're seeing a lot of nonprofits to some extent struggle with that kind of rapid response and donors expecting to some extent the same kind of quality reporting materials or information materials in order to make a significant gift at the same time as, you know, being under understaffed and it is, it's an interesting predicament to be in, which is a good segue into what we want to speak about next, which is nonprofits and fundraisers. So, you know, of course, the question on, on every fundraiser's mind or every nonprofit executive's mind is how can we effectively fundraise from donors in the midst of this crisis? So if you could sit down with a fundraiser right now and give them some advice, what would you want to tell them? I think one of the first pieces of advice I would give a fundraiser is don't ignore COVID. I think the most tone deaf messages and appeals I've gotten right now is just from a regular grassroots donor. The things that are like, just, just like, it's not happening at all. And it's just kind of business as usual because it's so jarring from the realities we're in. You're just immediately like, what is going on with that group? Where are they coming from? I can't even read it. So, so don't ignore it. Now it doesn't mean that you have to be on the front lines of COVID. You know, if you're an organization that isn't directly working on COVID or its effects on your population or your cause, that organization is in and of itself a victim of what's going on. And it's important to frame it that way. So, you know, if you're not actually directly working on COVID, I think being very transparent and open and honest about like, look, this is the effect COVID has had on our organization. We are an arts organization. We get 80% of our revenue from ticket sales. We cannot sell tickets right now. We are trying to pivot by doing XYZ. We're helping our staff. We're helping the artists in our community. We have a digital art show. Whatever you're doing to try and change in this moment. But don't try and hide the fact that like COVID has hurt your organization. And be super upfront about that and super clear and provide as much data as you can our doors will close in two months, but, but really this time, and, and it's a slide because we just lost 80% of our revenue. And, 
I, I think the more transparent and open people can be right now and speak to the moment that that as a fundraiser is the approach I'd be taking. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also an interesting time because a lot of organizations that are used to fundraising in a restricted capacity, so fundraising for their projects, they've never had to ask for general operating support or they've never felt comfortable or had the right dynamic with donors. And now for the first time, you know, funding overheads and keeping the lights on is impact. As you say, you know, the doors will close in two months. And so I think it's interesting to see charities that aren't used to fundraising for resilience in that same way. They're used to, you know, having very tangible and well thought out, you know, 12 month impact metrics. So it's, it's certainly a challenge. And another question that we get quite a bit from our clients and from our network generally is about change management in the context of a rapid, rapidly changing pandemic. So we wanted to ask you, if an organization has to drastically change their plans or their strategy, as many of them are having to do in response to COVID, and that may be on the front lines or it may not be, how would you recommend a fundraiser speaks to a donor about that, how they approach their donors and how they navigate that? Mm-hmm. Well, again, if you're a nonprofit and you're not rapidly, drastically changing what you're doing right now, I would wonder why on earth are you not? Because again, it, this is not a business as usual time. I, I saw something really funny that I shared with my team at one point that said, you know, we're not working at home. We're quarantined in a global pandemic and we're trying to work. <laughs> I feel like, let's, let's stop calling this working at home. Yeah. Like it's like it's a Friday and oh, we're all working at home. No, it's a quarantine or global pandemic. So it's the same thing for your nonprofit, right? You you have to be completely pivoting what you're doing. And it's okay if you're not able to do that 100%. You know, I, I think it's a time when organizations should be experimenting and they should be trying things and they should be thinking thinking those things through, like trying things, learning from them, changing what they're doing. And they should lead with that and be very upfront about how they're changing things and what they're trying. And even to the extent that if you learn from someone else, so if you're, let's stick with our arts organization, you're an arts organization in a mid-sized town, and you heard about this other arts organization that tried this thing up in the North, say that. <laughs> you know, we, we saw how this arts organization up in Manchester or whatever was doing this thing. And so we're gonna try it here. We would like to try it here. Will you support us? to try it here to keep the lights on. You know, you were talking about the resiliency piece and the general operating support. And I think organizations should be absolutely comfortable asking people for that support right now. You also have to be demonstrating what you're doing to keep the lights on. It can't be just like, give us funds so we keep the lights on, but it's give us funds. And by the way, we had to reduce salaries and we've changed this and we've changed that. And we put this in place and our board is enacting this plan. Like, you have to be also showing how you're trying to be resilient while you're asking funds to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that transparency piece is so essential. And I think certainly what we've heard is a bit of anxiety to be too transparent or to be too upfront about those challenges or, you know, whatever that looks like. But as you say, we, we couldn't agree more. It's, it's, a, it's a strength to be, to be that honest and that clear. Definitely. Now is the time. People cry on TV right and left. <laughs> if you can't be transparent now, <laughs> when are you going to do it? Exactly. Our collective humanity is, is at the forefront of everyone's mind. So it's, it is the time. It's so true. And I feel like a lot of the old rules have been thrown out the window, understandably, because we are in such an exceptional time. 
you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks, much less the next 12 months. We're hoping that a lot of the efforts that you're funding to get us all a vaccine are going to be very successful. And you you gave us some really interesting and actually quite positive changes in philanthropy and in giving that have come as a result of this crisis. Some of these things that you talk about in terms of reducing some of the silos that exist in philanthropy, in terms of people thinking more about flexible funding and unrestricted funding, these are things that lots of us have been hoping were going to happen for a really long time. They've been happening very slowly, and now all of a sudden things have sped up. What do you think, Vic, and obviously none of us have a crystal ball, but what is your prediction? Do you think that some of these changes are here to stay? when the crisis is over? Do you think we're going to go back to business as usual? If you had to just wildly kind of spit out there the impact that you think COVID-19 is going to have on philanthropic behavior, what would you say? I was writing something earlier today, personally, about how I'm, I'm simultaneously a pessimist and an idealist, which is a really painful thing to be, I gotta tell you. <laughs> and so there's a part of me that is like, yes, we're going to change the system forever. Everything I've been trying to do for so long. And, you know, there's another dimension to that that we haven't talked about. And that's equity. And that's racial and gender equity and how horrendously bad we are at that as a society on every level. And, and you cannot see it more starkly than to look at the hospitalization, infection and death rates in the United States. It is brutal. It is brutal. And if you can't look at that and you can't see that data and we can't change as a society and as nonprofits and as funders, then for shame, right? You know, it has to be a call to action. So it's imperative. It's either change or, you know, I I don't know what comes out of that uh, if we don't. So I certainly hope that a lot changes, including the equity piece. So, So you're hearing incredible talk about it and you're seeing data and you're seeing foundations and nonprofits really try to make sure we're getting resources to the most vulnerable, I hope that that can happen. There's some underlying data pieces that make that really hard. I was talking to an organization that collects lots and lots of data and they were saying that they have granular data from hospitals that says what the hospitals need, right? And they could like make a map and they could show that to donors. But here's the catch. They don't have the data from the hospitals in the poorest areas because the the hospitals that are collecting the data and sharing the data and putting it in a good format are the ones with more resources because there's disparity and inequity in the hospitals. And then this is all U.S., right? So it's tricky that even if you want to make sure you're being equitable, you you don't always have the data. So, you know, I'm hoping we come through this moment and we change forever. I mean, some of what will happen, though, again, the pessimist or the realist in me will tell you that there are nonprofits that are going to close and they're going to have to merge with others if they care about mission. And so again, back to kind of our collective humanity, this has to be a time that we focus on mission and and let go of some of those institutional barriers, let go of some of those silos and just get whatever resources we collectively can. And if that means letting go of an organization's brand or structure that may have to happen in this time because organizations are going to take a hit and many institutions are going to step up and give the same and give more, but some of them are not going to because their endowments or their trusts have been hit. And that's a reality on the everyday donor side. People are going to have less money to give, 
And so one of the things I think nonprofits and fundraisers really have to do is think about how to enable micro donations. And, you know, when you're used to going after major gifts, it may seem ridiculous, but how do you make people feel okay about giving you $5? So your, your donor that's always giving you $100, how do you say like, hey, we know you're taking a hit. You can join with others. You can join with these 10 other people and give us $50 just by giving five. You know what I mean? Like really kind of enabling that micro donation. I think that I'm not seeing enough of that yet. And I think it's going to be important or you're going to lose all of those. They're just going to say, oh, I can't write my $25 check. I can't write my $100 check. I can't write my $1,000 check. I'm not going to write a check. And that's actually, you can often still give something. And so how do we empower that? So, so there are some things that I think will have to happen as we go down this path. And part of that will be beyond collaboration and actually looking at mergers and acquisitions. I think a lot of organizations, while it might not be what they want to hear, it, it, is, it is the way things are going. So I think it's really good to be clear about that. So you, you've spoken a lot about the future of philanthropy and this everyday giver, which is certainly something that we're seeing our clients and our network struggle with, which is from, you know, kind of, I, I, I struggle to use the word immune in this context because I know it's a bit of a play on words, but kind of understanding who their COVID immune donors are, you know, which trusts and endowments are protected and which gifts can they bank on continuing to come through in their pipelines, which ones aren't. A lot of that is the major donors kind of at that mid-level, as you said, even a little bit above the everyday giver, but a lot of those gifts are going to take quite a hit. So they're having to adjust in the context of all of this, the future of philanthropy in, in the crystal ball that none of us have, but but we have a pretty good idea of. Do you think that fundraising practice will change at all in the coming months and years? And if so, how? It has to go completely digital, right? I mean, if, if that's not the first thing on anyone's list, I don't know what is. And folks still are writing checks, but we're seeing people like risk their lives to go get these checks and process them and get them into banks, you know, and that is that really something we all need to keep doing. Like, so really trying to go more to digital, but then really helping your donors who may have never made a gift online. How do you make it super easy for them? How do you walk them through it? How do you hold their hand? How do you offer to get on the phone with them? You know, especially if you have older donors who are major donors to your organization and you can give them, you know, they're all, helpless with technology right now and that doesn't feel good how can you help them how can you get on the phone with them and walk them through making a major gift on their computer to you for the first time it might make them feel great you know so get get creative about that going digital doesn't mean just putting up your website with a donate button <laughs> really think about what does that mean especially for your major donors and and how do you change that so i think that will change fundraising i think individual nonprofits really need to pay attention to these funds and collaboratives because if that's what's springing up all over and that's what's attracting a large amount of dollars, how do you get in those collaboratives and those funds? What are your relationships with your local community foundation that's running the fund? Do they know about you? Do you know about the RFP? Do you know about the many RFPs that are out there for these funds? Keeping an eye on that, I think will be really important during the crisis. And then, you know, more transparency from fundraisers, more directness, more honesty. You know, even again, if you're a nonprofit that isn't on the front lines of COVID and you're writing your donors, tell them that we understand your hearts are with first responders right now. We are a first responder and making sure the arts happen in our community. And, 
you know, we know your gift to us may be smaller than regular, you know, but, but still keep us on your list. Like, I know that's probably no fundraiser would ever say that in a million years, but maybe this is the time to try that, you know, send five of those letters and see what happens. So experimentation is going to be really important. There are probably other ways fundraising practices are going to change. Again, I'd like to see folks think about micro donations and collaborative donations and tapping into the power that feels really good for donors about being a part of something right now. I haven't seen a ton of it yet, but I think it would be a good thing to try if I were a fundraiser at a major nonprofit. Another big hope I have is fundraisers remembering that you're continuing to speak about overheads and operating costs as impact because it's not something a lot of them necessarily have in the muscle memory. Of course, that's a, a huge generalization, but because of the nature of the power dynamic and you know the over-restriction on donations, it's just not a way of communicating that's necessarily normalized. And so that's a, a real hope of mine that is, is philanthropy hopefully continues to be more flexible and more equitable yeah. in that kind of sense that fundraisers center those operating costs a little bit more in their proposals and their budgets as well. And I think reaching out to all those funders who have now publicly taken pledges to be more flexible and provide operating support, directly ask them what that means to them, you know, to have that dialogue like, so you decided to do this, tell us why and how do we then fit in or how does any nonprofit fit in? Like, I think trying to learn from that would be helpful for organizations too. Absolutely. And and also, you know, leaning on all of the advice that, that you're giving, it's it's so clearly relationships are at the heart of this, you know, strong relationships with your donors, calling them up. I love that what you said about the older donor and, you know, helping them make an online donation, but treating them like a human with respect and having a bit of humor in that interaction and, you know, not not taking it all too seriously, you know, to the extent that we can, I think is really important. And it's, we are in a time where the resilience of organizations will depend on the strength of their relationships. And so that's something we can't emphasize more. It's, you know, it, people give to people and you have to recognize that in a pandemic more than ever. And I think human contact is needed more so now than ever, even if it can't be physical. And I really just echo, I kind of wanted to like say amen the whole time you were talking about this entire podcast, but then Rachel would have edited me out after. So I just, oh, never. So, so much of what you said was so resonant and, you know, giving has always had this impact of bringing people joy and joy in their lives. And I think it's now having this added impact of giving people like a small sense of control in a world that feels completely out of control, that they can help, even if it's with a little bit. And I think in particular, your point about recognizing when we all come out of this, that the world is going to be different, that philanthropy and fundraising are going to be different and figuring out how to pivot and adapt are going to be so critical for successful organizations. We've got kind of one final question for you, which is what's the one key thing you think listeners should take away from this conversation with you today? I think it's exactly what you were just talking about, Alicia, and that is that giving makes people feel better, right? And the mental health risks of what's going on right now are are huge, and everyone is struggling with their mental health in one way or another along one part of a spectrum, whether it's just I have kind of a down day to like this has completely triggered my depression and anxiety into a place that I've never been, right? There's a complete spectrum of that and then and then onwards and there's research there's science that actually shows volunteering and giving actually makes you feel better it increases your serotonin it increases your your oxytocin 
which is super important. So giving actually, it lowers your blood pressure, right? It is a super good thing. And it's important to enable that for people right now and remind them of that. And even seeing a story about someone giving, it has some of the same effects and has some mm-hmm. of the same warm glow effects. And so, you know, it, it's got to be a part of everybody's how I stay healthy right now. I go for a walk, I get some exercise, I try to sleep some kind of normal hours and I, and I give back in some way. I call someone. Giving Tuesday has a daily generosity text that you can sign up for. And so every day they send you a text and it's a little, it's like, call an old friend, you know, or it's like support frontline health workers. So they have every day, it's different. And, and it's just this reminder that there are small things. It's back to the microdonation. There are small things you can do that really can help you. <laughs> it's in your own benefit. And it's in nonprofits' best interest to enable people to feel better through their generosity. And so that's, that's the one thing that I keep coming back to because I find it myself. You know, yesterday was Giving Tuesday, sat down with my kids like we do on Giving Tuesday normally and said, what are you thinking about? What causes close to your heart? What do you want to give to? Looked it up on my phone. <laughs> you know, and, and it was a nice part of the day. It really makes us feel better. I love that. That's such a, a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for your generosity, your generosity. This podcast certainly brought us joy and I'm sure that it will for many of the listeners. And thank you so much for your advice and and again for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for everything you guys are doing too. Thank you so much. That's all we've got for today. First of all, a huge thank you to Victoria for her generous time and advice and for her incredible leadership during this time. That was such an insightful conversation and she's definitely someone to follow. I was having the two hands up emoji in my head the entire time we were speaking to her. (laughs) So grateful to Vic for today's call and stay tuned. There are more episodes coming soon. In the meantime, check out IG's website and Medium blog for some COVID specific thought leadership. You know where to find us on Twitter at IG underscore advisors on our website, impactandgrowth.com and reach out anytime for a virtual coffee and hopefully a real coffee sometime in the not too distant future. And of course, finally, a huge thank you to our official sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation, for their generosity and partnership. Thanks again for listening, everyone. See you soon.